0: Liberalism started, at least for me, in England, but not 1100 with the English Charter of Liberties or 1215 with the Magna Carta, but it started in the year 1688. It happened because the English and Scots had a monarch in the person of King James II of England. By the way, he was also called King James VII of Scotland, same chap, different numbers because England and Scotland were are two different countries. Anyhow, I digress. King James II was a Roman Catholic. The Protestants did not want a Catholic on the throne. So in 1688, what was probably the last successful invasion of the British Isles to date, led by his daughter Mary and her Dutch husband William of Orange, they take the throne in a bloodless revolution. Parliament then goes ahead and approves this change of monarchy, removes James, who ended up in exile in France, while William and Mary became Mary II and William III as joint monarchs of the English and Scottish thrones. Oh, by the way, they were staunch Protestants. William and Mary died with no children. The crown passed to Mary II's sister, who became Queen Anne. When Anne died in 1714, with no heir either, instead of the throne passing to someone in her own family, in fact her own half-brother, from her own house of Stuart, After all, James had surviving children who wanted desperately the throne. Instead of passing the throne to someone like that, Anne made Sophia, Electress of Hanover, the heir apparent to the English throne, and by then the British throne. Sophia was Anne's aunt, so not a wildly random person as you might think but she was certainly not English or Scottish. She was German. Sophia, however, died just before Anne. So the throne passed to her son, George of Hanover, who in 1714 became king as King George I. Now think this through. They, the English and Scots, rather have this German guy as king of what was by 1714 Great Britain rather than an actual Briton, who would be James II's son. All because of the Catholic versus Protestant issue. No Catholic shall sit on the throne. But that's not all. Now, as a result of of this bloodless revolution, Parliament and William's desire to rule jointly with Mary, Parliament extracted something from William and Mary for this benefit. They made and had them sign off on what was known as the Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights Act from 1689 is a landmark act in the constitutional law of England that sets out certain basic civil rights and clarifies who would be next in line to inherit the crown. The Bill of Rights was one of the models for the U.S. Bill of Rights of 1789, the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights of 1948, and the European Convention of Human Rights from 1950. The Bill of Rights lays down limits on the power of the monarch, and sets out the rights of Parliament, including the requirement for regular parliaments, free elections, and freedom of speech in Parliament. It sets out certain rights of individuals, including the prohibition of cruel and unusual punishment, and confirmed that Protestants may have arms for their defence suitable to their conditions and as allowed by the law. It also includes no right of taxation without Parliament's agreement. For good measure, the Bill of Rights condemned several misdeeds of the now-deposed King James II, yes, the Catholic one. So what did it do? In short, it limits the power of the monarch, it gives rights to Parliament, certain rights to the individual, prohibits cruel punishments, Protestants can bear arms for their own defence, no taxation without parliamentary backing, only a Protestant can be monarch, ever, no Catholics. Now, if you're an American listening to this, then no, this isn't the US Bill of Rights. That came over 100 years later. Though you can see how someone may have come up with it from this. But I digress. These ideas reflected those of the political philosopher Mr. John Locke. Locke was born in 1632 and died in 1704. He was an English philosopher. He's widely regarded as one of the most influential of Enlightenment thinkers and commonly known as the father of liberalism. Locke was an empiricist. These are people who believe that knowledge comes only or primarily from sensory experience. Empiricism emphasises the role of empirical evidence in the formation of ideas rather than innate ideas or traditions. His writings influenced Voltaire and Jean-Jacques Rousseau and many Scottish Enlightenment thinkers, as well as the American revolutionaries, so much so that his contributions to classical republicanism and liberal theory are reflected in the US Declaration of Independence. Locke's theory of mind is often cited as the origin of modern conceptions of identity and the self, figuring prominently in the work of later philosophers. Locke was the first to define the self through a continuity of consciousness. He theorized that at birth the mind was a blank state. In short, Locke introduced the planet to a bunch of things. One, toleration of differing ideas, especially those of the religion. Two, he wrote against slavery, although he did invest in companies that actually invested in slavery, but never mind. He also believed in strong belief of private property. Human aspirations in material consumer goods is another belief that he had. He believed that being selfish should be allowed. He also believed that money is a good thing, that human nature is characterized by reason reason and tolerance. He had a belief in the social contract that individuals have consented either explicitly or tacitly to surrender some of their freedoms and submit to the authority of the ruler or to the decision of a majority in exchange for protection of their remaining rights or maintenance of social order i.e. a rule of law. He believed in establishing a civil society to resolve conflicts in a civil way with help from government in a state of society. Locke also advocated governmental separation of powers and believed that revolution is not only a right, but an obligation in some circumstances. This is probably now sounding more familiar to many of you as you listen. Words such as liberal, liberty, libertarian, and libertine all trace their history to the Latin liber, which ultimately means free. The American Revolution of 1776 and the French Revolution of 1789 used liberal philosophy to justify the armed overthrow of royal regimes. Liberalism started to spread rapidly, especially after the French Revolution, spreading often violently. Remember the three things I just said, armed, overthrow, and violently. Liberalism's, liberalism's main ideological opponents were communists, conservatives, and socialists. During the 20th century, liberal ideas spread even further, especially in Western Europe, as liberal democracies found themselves on the winning side in two world wars. Um, a liberal democracy? What is a liberal democracy? Well, episode 28 was all about democracy, so I suggest going there for more on that. In short, though, a liberal democracy is a political ideology as well as a form of government, where, simply put, a form-representative democracy operating under the principles of of liberalism. These countries that operated under this system, the ones who run liberal democracies, try to believe in open society, a free economy with private property, and an equal protection of human rights, civil rights, civil liberties, and political freedoms for all their people. Liberal democracies Often draw upon a constitution, sometimes codified such as the US or uncodified as the UK to separate the powers of government and force feed the social contract to the population. I already mentioned the social contract earlier, but what exactly is it? Well, the social contract is a theory or model that originated during the Age of Enlightenment and usually concerns the legitimacy of the authority of the state over the individual, wherein the individual consents, either explicitly or tacitly, to surrender some of their freedoms and to submit to the authority of the ruler or the decision of the majority in exchange for protection of their remaining rights or maintenance of that social order. The term itself is taken from The Social Contract, a 1762 book by Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Rousseau happened to be from the then city-state of Geneva, now in Switzerland. He was a philosopher and writer. According to him, by joining together into civil society through the social contract and abandoning their claims of natural right, an individual can both preserve themselves and remain free. This is because submission to the authority of the general will of the population guarantees individuals against being subordinate to the wills of others and ensures that they obey themselves because they are collectively authors of that same law. Natural rights and legal rights are the two basic type of rights. Natural rights are linked to natural laws. According to natural law theory, All people have inherent rights, conferred not by legislation, but by God, nature, or reason. Natural law theory can also refer to theories of ethics, theories of politics, theories of civil law, and theories of religious morality. Okay, so, we talked about the Glorious Revolution of 1688, establishing in essence the world's first liberal state, Political tension between England and its American colonies grew after 1765 in the Seven Years' War over the issue of taxation without representation, resulting in the declaration of U.S. independence, of a new republic, and the resulting American Revolutionary War. The Articles of Confederation written in 1776 now appeared inadequate to provide security or even a functional government. The Confederation Congress called a constitutional convention in 1787, which resulted in the writing of a new constitution of the U.S. establishing a federal government. The French Revolution began in 1789. The two key events that marked the triumph of liberalism were the abolition of feudalism in France on the night of the 4th of August, 1789, which marked the collapse of feudal and old traditional rights and privileges and restrictions as well as the passage of the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen in August. After the revolution came the civil code of the French introduced by Emperor Napoleon I, Interestingly, it is still in force today. The code was not the first such code in Europe, but was the first time a modern legal code was adopted across Europe, and it strongly influenced the law of many of the countries formed during and after the Napoleonic Wars. This code borrowed heavily from Roman Byzantine Emperor Justinian's 6th century codification of Roman law the Corpus Juris Civilis, and within it, the Institutes. The Institutes divided law into the law of 1. Persons, 2. Things, 3. Actions. In similar fashion, the Napoleonic Code divided law into 4 sections, 1. Persons, 2. Property, 3. Acquisitions of Property, and 4. Civil Procedure. The code established certain important provisions regarding the rule of law. Laws could be applied only if they had been duly broadcast and then only if they had been published officially, including things like provisions for publishing delays, given the names of communication, blah, 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 blah. Consequently, no secret laws were authorized. It prohibited backdating of laws. The Code also prohibited judges from, reviews, from refusing justice on grounds of insufficiency of the law, thereby encouraging them to interpret the law. On the other hand, it prohibited judges from passing general judgment of a legislative value. Regarding family, the Code established the supremacy of the husband over his wife and children which was a general legal situation in Europe at the time. Women had even fewer rights and children. Think about that. Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations was published in 1776. Go back and check episode 17, podcast on the economy for more on Adam Smith. Anyway, this was to provide most of the ideas of economics, at least until the publication of John Stuart Mill's Principles In 1848, John Stuart Mill was an English philosopher. He was one of the most influential thinkers in the history of classical liberalism. Classical liberalism being a political ideology and a branch of liberalism that advocates civil liberties under the rule of law with an emphasis on economic freedom. As a term, classical liberalism was applied in retrospect to distinguish earlier 19th century liberalism from social liberalism. So, what is social liberalism? Well, I will tell you. Social liberalism, also known as left liberalism in Germany, known as modern liberalism in the United States, and new liberalism in the United Kingdom, and in Spanish-speaking countries known as progressive liberalism, This branch of liberal thinking is a political philosophy and a variation of liberalism that maintains a regulated market economy and the expansion of civil and political rights. Under social liberalism, the common good is viewed as harmonious with the freedom of the individual. For his part, Mill defined social liberty as protection from the tyranny of political rulers. Social liberty for Mill meant putting limits on the ruler's power, so he would not be able to use that power to further his own wishes and thus make decisions that could harm society. In other words, people should have the right to have a say in the government's decisions. He said that social liberty was the nature and limits of the power which can be legitimately exercised by society over the individual. Mill's view on liberty, which was influenced by Joseph Priestley and Josiah Warren, is that individuals ought to be free to do as they wished unless they caused harm to others. In his book On Liberty, he argues for an earnest defence of free speech. Mill argued that free debate is necessary, a condition for cognitive and social progress. We can never be sure, he contends, that a silenced opinion does not contain some element of truth. He also argues that allowing people to air false opinions is productive for two reasons. One, individuals are more likely to abandon dubious beliefs if they are engaged in an open exchange of ideas. And two, by forcing other individuals to re-examine and reaffirm their beliefs in the process of debate, these beliefs are kept from declining into mere dogma. Mill staunchly disliked any form of censorship, and strongly supported press freedom. Mill supported abolishing slavery in the United States, expressing his opposition to slavery and that he was a staunch supporter of feminism. Mill can be considered among the earliest male proponents of gender equality. He argues that the oppression of women was one of the few remaining relics from ancient times, a set of dubious practices that severely impeded the progress of humanity. As a member of parliament, Mill introduced an unsuccessful amendment to the Reform Bill to substitute the word person in place of the word man. Thanks to imperialism and colonialism, social-liberal policies have been widely adopted in large chunks of Western European countries, North America, plus Australia and New Zealand. In other words, European countries generally. I'm counting North America, Australia and New Zealand as culturally European here. Of course, they are way more European than Latin America or technically colonized countries like Japan or South Korea. Social democracy is an ideology advocating progressive modification of capitalism. As an economic ideology and political regime, it is described by academics as advocating for economic social interventions to promote social justice within the framework of a liberal democratic polity and capitalist oriented mixed economy. They're actually closer to social liberals and socialists, but are not communists. To keep me and you in check, Just keep in mind that socialism is a political and social economic philosophy encompassing a range of economic and social systems characterized by social ownership of the means of production. That could mean public or social ownership of the means of production. Communism, on the other hand, is a movement within socialism whose goal is the establishment of a communist society, a socio-economic order arranged upon the ideas of common ownership of the means of production and the absence of social classes, money and the state. Liberalism, though, is none of that. It's different. Even social liberalism is different to socialism and communism. But there are similarities with socialism. Liberalism isn't without its critics, though. Edmund Burke was an Irish statesman, who is considered by some to be the first major proponent of modern conservative thought. He offered a fierce critique of the French Revolution by assailing the liberal pretensions to the power of rationality and to the neutral or natural equality of all humans. Karl Marx rejected the foundational aspects of liberal theory, hoping to destroy both the state and the liberal distinction between society and the individual, while refusing the two in a collective whose designed to overthrow developing capitalist order of the 19th century. That said, there, remain, there remains some overlap and at times confusion between socialism and social liberalism. Social liberalism is closer to socialism. It is, however, not communism to the point that Vladimir Lenin stated that, in contrast with Marxism, liberal science defends wage slavery. So, where are we today? Today, even in the United States, that bastion of capitalist conservative church of all things free is a social democracy. If you are a listener in the U.S., There is little point in laughing at the Canadians north of the border or those Europeans. The US has legal and social provisions establishing a social democracy just like France. Just a degree of capitalism that is allowed to be higher in the US. Each of these social democratic countries have small C conservative movements and large C conservative political parties. Consider the Thatcher government in the UK widely considered a benchmark right-wing conservative government, both big C and small C, continued many provisions of the welfare state, National Health Service and other government-funded items. Her supposed right-wing economics became known as Thatcherism. The US itself has things like a welfare state, not just for things like COVID relief or economic relief, but more broadly. The US has deep regulatory pockets often getting involved in the stock markets and other parts of the economy. It intervenes in the economy to impact its direction and growth. The US has socialized healthcare for military veterans, the elderly, and extremely poor. It is a welfare state with high taxes, even in the US states with low taxes. If you consider healthcare costs as a tax, add up the sales tax, Add up the property tax, the state and federal tax, and you are looking at taxation levels like Germany. Well, what about the future of liberalism? According to current 2021 Russian President Vladimir Putin, liberalism has become obsolete. He claims that most people in the world oppose multiculturalism, oppose mass immigration, and oppose the rights of people who are maybe gay. Of course he is taunting the liberal world order. The Russians are not liberals. They are not all social democrats. Putin himself is anything but that. We have seen in the recent past liberal democracies wage war. Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan are just some recent examples. There have also been odd and end invasions like that of Grenada, Panama and the bombing of places like Serbia and drone campaigns elsewhere. In the case of Iraq, the whole point was to deliver deliver liberalism and freedom at the end of a bullet. Liberal democracies have been involved in not just hot wars, but cold wars too. Liberals often go to war supposedly behind enemy lines in non-liberal countries such as Bolivia, Angola, Cuba, Turkey and so on. The colour revolutions were driven by the liberal ruling elites in countries like Egypt that had catastrophic consequences because, of course, if you allow liberal democracy to flourish in Egypt, then you get a staunchly conservative, right-wing, theologically motivated government who will ultimately hate you for being you. When things happen that are remotely anti-liberal, Or at least against the grains of social democracy, such as the UK leaving the EU after 2016, or the election of Donald Trump the same year, or Viktor Orban in Hungary, or Narendra Modi in India, or any anti-liberal movement, there is an expected reaction by the liberals, the social democrats, to move against it. However, The biggest challenge in the social democratic countries has been the political liberalisation of the elite. The politicians, the media, the social media, the civil servants, the intelligence agencies and so on are increasingly militarising liberalism. The risk was low in the 1990s when this started because the socially liberal countries had no competition. However, in a world that has not one but several powers, all with different views of militarised liberalism. That risk has increased because the risk of clashing with militarized autocrats has increased. Culturally autocratic governments don't venture out too far. They are too busy repressing their own people. Socially liberal democrats enjoy going behind enemy lines and try doing something that may mean repressing somebody else's people, not my people, somebody else's people. Then there is the concept of liberalism itself. The great parts of liberalism, like free speech and support for your rights, are now part of conservative thinking in these socially liberal countries, almost as a given. There is no question that women face a harder time than men in jobs, or that a minority may have more issues than a majority applicant, or some, someone gay may face some discrimination, or someone who is not. But it is not state policy. That is cultural and that is not an easy fix. Just ask the Indians how multi decades of caste quotas are going in India. The US has recently moved a notch up to what I would call liberal fundamentalism with indoctrination of a lot of its population with extremist views such as critical race theory. Yes, liberal fundamentalism. Those who argue against critical race theory Suggest that this theory in of itself is racist. Critics also slam its idea of institutional racism. Often the critical race theorists wage battle in countries who, for the most part, are already trying to tackle the very issues they are fighting for. The advocates of the theory may want to try their luck in countries like Iran or Saudi Arabia where it's really needed. So is liberalism obsolete? Well, every idea mutates. Some mutate to bigger, better things. Classical liberalism is now part of conservatism. Liberal fundamentalism, sometimes referred to as woke, isn't socialism. Isn't classic liberalism. Isn't conservatism. It's a mutation or a variant of neo-socialism mixed with modern social liberalism with a hint of identity politics. It's far from obsolete. It like all ideologies, will mutate again as a new generation shows up and uses the liberal banner for their cause. For anyone not a liberal, it was always obsolete. You have been listening to an Alternative History Podcast. Please make sure to like, subscribe and follow and comment on your podcast platform of choice. Thank you so very much.